You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 262. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Thank you for joining me today. We have a really um, a really interesting solo show today. Got a lot of things to talk to you about. We're going to do a little bit of a news update, a little bit of um, a little bit of COVID talk, actually, but we'll get through that really quick. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of follow up on ChatGPT, but then we're going to talk about category theory, which is exciting. Uh, beyond belief to mathematicians. Why are mathematicians so excited about category theory? <laughs> if you're not a mathematician, you might be like, well, well, why? Okay, we'll talk about that for a little bit. Uh, first of all, a question coming in uh, through the internet. Um, this person asks, can you do a solo sh- episode on your thoughts about quantum computing, uh, i.e. if it can really break encryption? I do not see how it can, given its, given its non-deterministic idea. Uh, that is a really interesting question. I'm, I'm of course, right now, I'm not prepared to do a solo show on quantum computing. I'd have to do a little bit of a research on that, although I do know some people who are in quantum computing, so I feel like I should ask one of them to be on the show as a guest. Um, I am not worried, personally, about my encryption in the near term. I don't think that uh, quantum computing uh, can touch that, and I think if it can, we'd, we'd, we'd see it from a mile away, uh, from miles away, uh, just because you know you, you'd start to hear rumblings of it in, in research, I don't think it'll happen. You know, all of a sudden. Uh, but um, that's just my impression of it. I <laughs> it's been a while since I looked at how the tech worked. I did take a did go to a lecture on it once and. And as an undergrad, but that was um, that was 2002, so that was 21 years ago. So <laughs> more than that's uh, kind of that's uh, uh, kind of crazy. So um, uh, yeah, it, it has been a while, but but that is a good topic. I feel like I will uh, I will get into it. Uh, secondly, I wanted to call your attention to a, a YouTube video that uh, I had watched recently. Uh, this was from John Stossel, and he's doing a, th- and I'll link to it on the on the. Uh, show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 262. Uh, John Stossel did a three-year retrospective on our reaction to COVID. We did a lot of episodes on COVID, but I think the one that this reminds me of most is episode 166 on COVID memory holes. And that is like how there were so many things that we did and so many things that happened during the course of, of the whole ordeal uh, that we simply have forgotten about. And we, we don't really have a lot of retrospectives about what uh, didn't go well. Um, or, and if we do, it's kind of like more of a, more of a retroactive, like, oh, this is, uh, this, you know, uh, sort of like a, uh, almost like a, a propaganda-based story about how 2020 and 2021 went and not, not the real thing. So, um, I thought that Stossel was a really good starting point to, to start to look at this because he's always a little more measured and mainstream, but also a critic of uh, the establishment. So it's good to watch. Um, obviously, it goes without saying, we got some bad or and or contradictory advice. Perhaps some of that is expected because, you know, uh, there were a lot we didn't know. We didn't know um, whether uh, washing our packages would work or not. And at that point, it was like, we don't know how bad it is. We know that here are some possible precautions we could take. So we might as well just do all of them. And the problem with that is there is no problem with doing that. You do it. But the problem is people don't understand that later on you have to revise that. Uh, so yeah, 
Um, and, and even washing your hands, which is a good idea generally, so there's no problem with washing hands, but like, you know, it didn't really prevent COVID that much. Um, and then we got contradictory evidence on the masks, no mask issues. I think um, a lot of people forget we were told not to wear masks for the first few weeks of this. And then we later found out that, um, that the government was asking us to do that because they were afraid that um, hospitals would not have masks available. It almost sounds crazy today to think like masks are, are not available, but, uh, but that's, that's, that's what they thought. Seems like there is still, even in, even I mentioned this in 2021, same is true in 2023, seems to be no patterns at all in how countries or states did on COVID based on policy. So there's no way to make any co uh, causal link between either policy or actions of the populace and outcomes, death act outcomes. Now, Stossel is very smart looking at excess deaths rather than deaths overall to get a better picture of what was going on because um, deaths, or not deaths overall, but deaths uh, according to COVID or, or uh, presumed to be COVID because we're worried about undercounting and overcounting. But if you just look at excess deaths based on um, what was expected, uh, that's a harder number to fudge when you're looking across multiple countries. Um, so therefore, you know, some of these things that some of these governments did were violations of human rights, lockdowns, restrictions of travel, and also some of them were just, you know, restrictions of public services. It's hard to not reach the conclusion that a lot of that was for nothing. And it's an important truth that a lot of people don't want to face. But uh, at what point are we going to face it, if if ever, um, maybe, maybe in many years from now? Um, he did say that Australia had slightly better results with authoritarian lockdown. I believe he said people lived on average two weeks longer, although I don't know how you can actually attribute that to their authoritarian lockdown, uh, you know, whether the, the result would have been the same because some countries did better or worse uh, regardless. Um, so, but then there are people who questioned, okay, even if we take that at face value, even if they did slightly better, was it really worth it? And um, there's, there hasn't been discussion of, you know, is it really worth the, the, the cost of disrupting everyone's lives for a year or two years in order to just, um, you know, uh, save people from, uh, or, or save people a, a tiny bit uh, because these lockdowns also have, uh, as, as I've mentioned before, it's not just convenience in lives, it's also lives and lives. You know, people get, People get um, people get messed up by the lockdown as well. He also mentioned how places like Sweden and uh, Georgia and Florida were um, demonized early on as like the worst places to be because they were following different policies. They were following more lenient policies. And it turns out that uh, the the country of Sweden did better than most of Europe, and the states of of the state of Florida did about equally to the state of New York, which uh, which is uh, um, I'm very telling. All right. So he also cites uh, Maxime Lott, who uh, runs Substack Maximum Truth. I, I think he's also the producer there at Stossel. I'm going to look up some of Maxim's stuff, an article that focused on the noble lies that the government and the institutions were telling us, things that weren't quite true, but they thought they should say it anyway for our own good. Um, and so th this article definitely goes further than Stossel himself. So maybe we'll talk more of this. Maybe I can get uh, this guy, uh, Maxim Lott, on the show, who knows? All right, I think the bottom line here is uh, be humble out there. You don't know who's gonna be right and who's not going to be right. And if you have power to coerce people, be very 
wary uh, of using that. that. That's just what I'd say. Uh, although I feel like most of the people listening are the ones being coerced and not the ones doing the coercing. But, uh, but hey, that's what happens. All right. Next one out there. Google panic? Question mark. I don't know if panic, you know, there's panic and there's panic. Um, I, I've been through a lot. I've been through a lot of crap. Would it all be called called panic? I don't know. But here's this article in in DNY uh, D News. Uh, Google calls in help from Larry Page and Sergey Brin for the AI fight last month. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, Google's founders, they held several meetings with company executives. The topic: a rival's new chatbot a clever AI product that looked as if it could be the first notable uh, threat in decades to Google's 149 billion search business. You all know what this is. It's chat GTP. I don't know how this ends, but if you're having to, if, if Google executives are having to go up and bug their founders, you know that they are taking this deeply seriously. And maybe they want this article out there to show people that they are taking this deeply seriously. Um, and as we've said before, and I know I have poo-pooed Google in the past, but they do have amazing research, uh, and they do have the technology to uh, meet this head-on. But also, as we've said before, it can be tough for a large organization with lots of momentum on how their service operates to integrate this stuff directly. Meanwhile, OpenAI has both the nimbleness of a small startup company, even though it's been around for a while, and they have the large... Uh, they have the large, the large giant, that sounds uh, kind of um, redundant, the large behemoth Microsoft behind it, along with their Bing search engine, which will now finally have a shot to go after Google if they have access to this technology. How, how far-sighted was it for Microsoft to create Bing? Because they must have known when they created Bing that there was no way they could be as popular as Google in the marketplace. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's what they told investors. Oh, yeah, we're going after Google. Maybe they told their engineers, you're going to build a search engine. It's just going to be like as good as Google. But I think deep down they knew that they couldn't beat Google in the marketplace. Uh, but they wanted something in the market anyway because they, I, they unless they kind of stumbled, <laughs> unless they kind of thought that they would uh, beat Google and, and, and didn't, but then kind of stumbled it to anyway. But let's, let's take the 4D chess version of this. Sounds better for, uh, for Satya Nadella. Mm -hmm. uh, they knew, uh, for, and for the, um, um, the, the strategic team at Microsoft, uh, they knew it was good to have something like Bing on the market anyway, even if they could be number two to Google it would be very helpful for their platform and for their suite of, of products, um, not just to steal some revenues away from Google, but also to keep more within the ecosystem. By the way, a lot of people get this confused. Remember, Sundar Pichai is Google, and Satya Nadella is Microsoft. Yes, it's easy to mix them up. Uh, they are both uh, Indian Americans, um, a lot of um, great uh, Indian engineers and tech managers in uh, in in the United States, uh, and uh, and they are facing off now. It's Google versus Microsoft. I think we're coming full terms. It's Google versus uh, it was Apple versus Microsoft. Then it was um, uh, Google versus Apple. Now it's now it's Google versus Microsoft. So we're kind of doing the three way uh, round robin here. All right. So the re-engagement of Google founders, continuing from the article, at the invitation of the company's current chief executive, Sundar Pakai, emphasized the urgency felt among many Google executives about artificial intelligence and that chatbot, ChatGPT. 
The bot, which was released by the small San Francisco company OpenAI two months ago, amazed users by simply explaining complex concepts and generating ideas from scratch. More important to Google, it looked as if it could offer a new way to search for information on the internet, and that it is. It is not a replacement for Google yet. It is slow, it is um, uh, inconsistent, and it's very expensive for them to run on the back end, so they need to find a business model. <laughs> but as we all know, this is very new technology, and so you want something, you want to look at something that's going to be very kind of, um, uh, uh, that, 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 that shows great potential and can improve at exponential rates. And that's what's scary to them about this technology. And that's what is exciting uh, for the investors of OpenAI about this technology because, you know, uh, so what? Even if the first car, you know, was not as good as a horse, it couldn't go as fast and it could, you know, kept breaking down, you know eventually the car's going to win because it could just get better and better. Meanwhile, Google search without this technology is stagnant. So... We are in an AI arms race. Um, I don't know. Maybe we should have our own theme music for the AI arms race. But uh, that's that 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 uh, that makes me excited by the fact that uh, I went into the field of machine learning because um, it looked a little bit um, it looked a little bit stagnant for a while. But but things are heating up. So. I'm, I'm glad we have the local maximum to talk about this because uh, this is going to be going on for many years uh, and, uh, and the next few years are going to be very exciting. The rest of the article talks about Google taking steps to cut red tape to product launches, which is fine, good action to take, but it confirms that we know there's lots of red tape. Meanwhile, Google has also cut 6% of its workforce, maybe not its workforce on, on the, um, the language model, uh, version of search, but that's 12,000 people, including engineers, linking to CNBC here on the show notes page. Just when I'm on a job search, we've got 12,000 people coming into the job market. Ugh. Well, I'm just going to ignore that and continue my job search. Lots of uh, interviews this week. Seems to be going pretty well. Uh, but there is a silver lining to our industry here, and I want people to understand this. There is a sense of urgency in our industry that I have not seen before or in a long time. There's less time for nonsense. And boy, oh boy, I could do some serious episodes on some of that nonsense. And maybe when I'm gainfully employed once again, so it's not the, the, the top episode that people search for. But, uh, but I, think, I think Elon Musk kind of pushed this over the edge when he was really reorganizing Twitter and telling people to get back to work and, let, and, and letting some people go regrettably. Uh, that happened at Google. That happened um, at, at Microsoft as well. But I feel like now um, people are going to be pushed to work a little bit. Now, that said, you know, I don't want to get into an office environment and constantly be um, paranoid that I'm going to be laid off, if, you know. But um, hopefully, hopefully some companies will enable, like, a culture of um, let's encourage people to do their best work. That's all. That's all I want. That's what I ask for. All right. Now, on to the math. What many of you have come here for. If some of you just came for the news, stick around for the math, but I, <laughs> I know we'll see what happens. All right. I'm going to have a larger conversation soon about my paper on relative probability uh, with Aaron, because this paper, uh, Relative Probability on Finite Outcome Spaces, it's a 30-page paper on 
theoretical probability. And I worked really hard on it, and I put it out to my AI list today. I know some of you got it. Um, so hopefully I'll, that'll be kind of a back and forth. But I want to talk about some preliminaries today. The paper does mention category theory. And category theory has been the domain of pure mathematicians um, for you know quite a while, maybe the 20th century, the late 20th century, people mathematicians were all excited about category theory. Early tw- or, or late late 19th century mathematicians were were excited about naive set theory, and the early 20th century set theory naive set theory kind of fell apart with um, uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, and then we had to have um, a new version of set theory underlying mathematics. Category theory is often saying as the as the new um, the, the, the new foundation of mathematics. I actually don't see it as a replacement of set theory. I, I, I see it as something else. And we'll talk about it a, a little bit. Um, but I, I want to call to your attention two episodes, both of which are really worth taking a revisit. Um, episode 146 with Ty Danae Bradley, and I talked to her about topology on that episode. That was uh, back in 2020, so about two and a half years ago. And she wrote a book, uh, that relates topology and category theory, and also episode 243 with Eric Daimler on Conexus, who is using it, who, whose whole company, the whole purpose of their company is to use category theory. And Eric Daimler actually described category theory as metamath. So let me go back to episode 146 and kind of summarize what Ty Dene said. Um, you know, first of all, about uh, topology. There's some interesting stuff about topology that she said, uh, because it's also like, how do you talk about the basics of math and get it right and teach it to teach it to someone who's trying to learn it and also teach it to the general public? Because I said, well, topology was very difficult at first because you go in and you see a bunch of axioms and you're like, why, you know, why, why, why are they telling me to do this? Yeah, sure. I, I see what they're telling me to do, but I don't understand why. And, you know, topology is all about shapes. It's all about the, sh- the, the shape of space and the connectedness of space. But if you start with the ax- axioms and like, oh, there's points and there's open sets, it's like, there's no shapes in there at all. What's going on here? And so there's sort of, a, I, I believe, a, a lot of my best teachers and professors over the years started with a conceptual basis, like what are we trying to do? What do we want to define? And then you kind of try to define it, and then you um, and then you run into difficulties, and you're like, well, you can't define it this way because then there's a problem, and if you can't define it that way, then there's a problem. So, for example, uh, for um, a concept that is um, that is uh, um, that is related to topology and the connectedness of space is the is the calculus um, concept of a limit, and the idea, like, let's say we take a um, let's say we 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 take a sequence where we're adding half as much every time. So we start with a half, or we start with one, then we add a half, so we get one and a half. Then we add a quarter, so we get one and three quarters. Then we add an eighth, and then we get uh, one and, and seven eighths, and so on and so forth. So it seems to be approaching two as you continue this, proje- this uh, process onto infinity. And so you can say, well, what is a limit? Well, you could start if you, you know, were a high school student and you sort of started or, or just anyone thinking about it for a second. And you said, well, the limit is two because it's getting closer and closer to two. Well, yes, it's getting closer and closer to two, but it's also getting closer and closer to three. Uh, so 
that is uh, not a precise enough definition. Or I mean, you could make closer and closer precise. You could be like, oh, the difference is going down every time. But the problem is the difference is going down with relation to two. The difference is going down with relation to three. Also, you don't necessarily have to get closer and closer. You could get further away and then eventually get closer. So there's all these questions about limits, which is why the definition of a limit when you get to calculus and when you get to like real analysis and you're doing some 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 really like rigorous definitions in mathematics, it's kind of a it's kind of a wonky definition. You got epsilons, you got deltas, and you're like, what the heck is going on in here? Uh, that's just because uh, mathematicians were trying to define something uh, that was, uh, but but that built off of an intuition, a human intuition that was already there. So. Um, that's really important when thinking about axioms, and I have some axioms of uh, uh, a, an alter. I presented an alternative set of axioms for probability theory in my paper, and so that's kind of something that I think about when describing the the bottom layer of mathematics. Because um, you know, you you a you want axioms that are simple and make sense, and then when you describe them, you want to make sure they they are they they make sense to people. All right. So, um, what is category theory? And, or, well, first of all, uh, yeah, what is category theory and, and why is it important from my perspective? So, uh, Ty Diné says that uh, category theory provides bridges. Uh, so, if you can take some concepts that you are less familiar with and then you can convert them on a one to one basis into something that you are more familiar with, then you could figure out the answer and then you can convert it back. And that's the whole idea. That's what category theory is. So it is essentially an analogy machine. And analogies are the main way that we uh, work, and it's really good. So the study, so category theory, just to give a little bit of a mathematical background, I'm not going to go too much, but it's the study of something called categories. Um, and you look at, and a category is something where you have a bunch of objects, and you look at some relationships that these objects have to each other called arrows. Now, arrows can be anything, but there are some prime examples to kind of get thinking of it. So you could think of categories. Uh, so one example of a category is our uh, sets and functions. So let's say you have three sets. They could be mathematical sets, or they could even be, um, you know, the, they... They could be mathematically defined sets, but like in computer science, oh, here's a set of like five colors, and here's a set of numbers, and here's a set of, um, here's another. And you could define a, a series of functions from one set to another. And the great thing about functions is that you can compose them. So if you have a function that maps values in set A to set B, and then you have another function that maps values from set B into set C, then you could start from set A, call the first function, get something in set B, then call the second function, or the second mapping, I'm calling functions and mappings the same thing, then get to set C. And so when you compose them together, you have one big mapping where you could jump all the way from set A to set B. So, it, so um, you know, uh, and an example of that would be, um, what's the square root of your age? Uh, well, um, that you can have a mapping between people and ages, and then you have a mapping, and age is a number. Uh, maybe it's, a, it's an integer, and then you have a mapping between integers and, uh, and, and or, or, or maybe age is a real number. You know, we'll do it, say it's a positive number. And then you have mappings between positive numbers and other positive numbers, known as the square root. 
and then to put those together and say, what's the square root of your age? So that's, uh, that's another function, even though it's composed between the two. So these arrows in category theory are always composable because this pattern of having one transformation after another into different domains, which are the objects, those, are, those come up again and again in mathematics. Now, some of these interesting ones are like restrictions of functions. So for example, uh, um, there's, there's something in, in linear algebra and mathematics called a, a linear function. That's like, you know, when two objects are related by a straight line. Very important, very simple. Um, if, you have, uh, if you have two linear functions, you compose them together, they're still a linear function, which means that, the, the, that um, linear functions themselves, uh, perhaps between vector spaces, uh, can be called categories. And maybe if, if you want to say linear function, and for those of you who, who know linear algebra, you know, um, a, a linear function between two vector spaces of uh, R to the N is going to be represent, or let's say R to the N to R to the M, so like an N-dimensional vector space to an M-dimensional vector space. A linear um, map from one to the other would be represented by an N by M matrix. So uh, basically those are all the linear maps and then um, you know, you can compose them so long as you're going through the same size. You know, when you multiply two matrices together, you know, the, the column uh, size of one has to represent the, the number, of row, number of columns in one has to represent the number of rows in another. Then you, you multiply two matrices together, then you get a third matri matrix that is the linear um, transformation from the first domain all the way to the third domain. Um, you know, another example is, is in topology, is a continuous function. If you could deform something continuously without picking up your pen or, or whatever, maybe you know, top, topologically, and then you do it again, you can kind of uh, uh, do it both times in a row. So category theory kind of captures all of that. Another related example is type systems in computer science. So um, for example, uh, this is still mathematics and functions, but now you're talking about um, the, the type of mathematics defined in computer science and the type of functions defined by a computation, not necessarily a mathematical mapping. So if I want to have, um, let's say I have uh, a, a weekday and then I want to, uh, and then I have the, the Boolean type and I want to create a function is weekend and I say, okay, if weekday equals Saturday or weekend e or weekday equals Sunday, then return one, otherwise return zero, um, then that's a mapping from weekdays into Booleans, and there's a, there's a computation for that. Uh, that's also a category. And also related, even though there's sometimes less, you know, computation uh, involved, like, you know, less recursive computation are database schemas. So database schemas are also typed in computer science. And this is Conexus. This is what we were talking about in episode 243. Uh, there are some differences between database schemas and code types, but I think those can be harmonized with some work. And I think that's what a lot of companies often are, even if they don't realize that's what they're doing, that's what um, a lot of engineers are doing most of the time. And so that is, uh, that is essentially uh, um, a, a, another example of category theory. And so that's why this is really valuable in computer science, because it, let's say you write some code in computer science, or let's say you write some, some code that, that runs on a particular language, uh, and then you want to run it on, uh, 
wants to run it in another language, well, you could port it over to that second language, or you can kind of convert it into the, uh, you can convert the in inputs into what the first language expects, put it into your function that the first language uh, is already written in the first language, and then return it back. Obviously, you know, you don't really switch off languages that much uh, in, in computer science exactly like that, but, but that's just an example of, you know, you write one subsystem and another subsystem, and then you realize, oh, we can reuse this in a way that we weren't expecting. So, um, uh, so, so, so that could be very powerful stuff. And by the way, these arrows that we talk about uh, in category theory, these, these transformations, these mappings, uh, what's interesting about them is they don't necessarily need to be functions. They don't actually need to be doing anything. So in, in the paper that I wrote, um, I described probability as a thin category. That means that there are these um, these kind of objects in the category, which in my case are, are outcomes of a probabilistic system, and related between them are arrows which just represent um, the, uh, the relative probability between two of them. So in other words, you can say that the, the, the probability, like if X is twice as likely as Y, then the arrow from y to x would be 2. The arrow from x to y would be 1 half because you're going back and forth. But there are no other arrows between them. There's only a single one. So that's a thin category, but it's still a category because if you know that A is twice as likely as B and B is three times as likely as C, then you know that A is six times as likely as to C and then you could, you could fill in an arrow. So it's like, well, if you know the relationships between um, between outcomes from from uh, one to another, uh, like a, in a path, you could know the relationship between the first outcome and the last outcome in that path. So I feel like relating probability theory to category theory is another way to kind of, once you're in category theory, you kind of hook into this very powerful branch of mathematics and then you could do anything with it. So, and I'm still learning a lot about it, and so I, I'm not an expert at category theory um, you know, by any means, but I'd love to know, uh, you know, from category theorists how we can kind of, to, if you're out there, please reach out, and maybe we can uh, chat about um, my paper and my idea and try to figure out how to, how to fit, how, how the category framework uh, can be used to say something about probability that maybe we couldn't say before. That would be really exciting. So what's the importance for AI? What's the importance for the future uh, in computer science? Uh, from these interviews, that I've done over the last few years. I believe that category theory is a branch of mathematics that will see increasing interest from uh, software engineers in particular. It is, um, in many sense that I got this from, from uh, Eric Daimler, the non-machine learning side of AI. Um, it's an analogy machine, as I said before, with analogies being the most important part of learning. Um, the, the reason why computer science works, the reason why mathematics works is because I take things in the real world, I make an analogy for them in the logical world, then I transform, I do some computation in the logical world, and then I transform them back into the real world. You know, the whole kindergarten math, I have two apples, and then I have three apples. How many apples do I have? Well, two apples and three apples, th those are really patterns that you see, uh, you know, patterns of of objects that, that, that we've learned from our brain and you know, well, this is two, 
Um, that's kind of a logical construct that I've associated with that. This is three. This is another logical construct that I've associated with that. Things that add. And now, I, now I'm in the logical world. I could just say two plus three equals five. Then I bring it back to the physical world where I imagine five apples. And what do you know? That's what I have, five apples. And so that is um, one of the basis. That's like... Um, uh, that's the basis of making analogies in the real world. That's the basis of intelligence. And I want to talk about this more and more. I, I, just talking about it makes me, makes me get excited. So finally, I think that um, category theory will provide the logical backing to the fuzzier language models that are out there right now, uh, you know, like ChatGPT, like these large language models, which, you know, people... Um, we saw some funny interactions with them where like it couldn't really play tic-tac-toe very well, or it was like very frustrating. It like declared victory when it clearly did not win. Um, but how hard is it to um, program tic-tac-toe? Very, very easy to program tic-tac-toe. Uh, and so it would be nice to have these uh, fuzzy uh, language models hook into these logically backed data models and I think that uh, when you put these together, that's when you get the ultimate smart product. That's when you get very close to general AI. Um, so maybe I can be a small part of it one day. Who knows? If you're working on something in this realm, let me know, and we'll see if I can help out. All right. So that is my talk on category theory. Uh, just, a, you know, I hope you might have learned a little bit about it. This is not meant to make you an expert by any means, but uh, I'd like feedback. Let me know what you think. Localmaxradio at gmail.com. Do you think... Category theory is worth looking at from the perspective of an engineer and how so. All right. Now we have got our segment. And now the probability distribution of the week. All right, folks. Probability distribution of the week. As you know, we are doing... This year, we're doing continuous distributions, and there are a few obvious ones that I'm not getting to today. Um, you know, one is the normal distribution. I feel like I should have Aaron here for the normal distribution. But the one that we are doing today is really, really important. Um, it's almost the normal distribution of probability. It's, uh, it's called the beta distribution. Um, now, the beta distribution is kind of one level up from a binary distribution or a binomial distribution. Now, if you, if you look back, I actually have to look back, uh, you know, when, when I actually uh, uh, um, did that, that would actually be a good on-the-fly on the search. Uh, let's, let's try binomial distribution, local maximum. That's how I search. I can only search Google. I think that um, Squarespace's search is less than optimal. Um, or maybe local max radio. Yeah, it's sad that I have to search. I have to search Google for my own website, even though my own website has a search. Um, okay, binomial distribution was episode two thirty eight. So I will link to that. Episode two thirty eight. So now, as you know, the binomial distribution and the Bernoulli distribution is based on a weighted uh, coin. So the idea is that okay. Um, I have a coin that maybe comes up 60% on heads, 40% on tails. Um, I used to talk about weighted coins all the time, but now I think, um, now I have problem talking about it when I realize there are very few weighted coins out there. There are double-sided coins, but, but very few weighted coins. But 
there are very many processes out there where you're like, okay, this is going to happen one way 60% of the time, and it's going to go another way 40% of the time. So we could just think of that. So think of a weighted coin, and then uh, at the ends, you have some distribution of trials. So let's suppose uh, I have a 40% uh, uh, heads, 60% tails. I flip it 10 times, and I get four heads and six tails. All right, that seems like a pretty likely outcome for that coin. Let's say I've got uh, zero heads and 10 tails. All right, now that's seemingly like a, a, a less likely uh, outcome for, for that coin. Uh, so, um, okay, and, and what's interesting, each trial only has two options. It's either a, it's a categorical distribution. It's either a yes or a no. It's a binary distribution. So that's very simple. But now we go one step up and we, t we start to look at the, 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 the weight of this coin. And the weight of this coin is kind of unknown. Well, it could be zero. It's like double-sided tails. It could be 0.5. That's a fair coin. It could be one. That's double-sided heads. And it could be anywhere in between. It could be 0.6, 0.5. It could, could be any number between and including zero or one. And so what we want is a distribution inside that unit segment, zero, one. Now, you could take kind of standard distributions like the normal distribution and, uh, and, and truncate them. I hate truncating distributions. It's ugly, ugly as hell. You know, that just means you chop it off. It's, it's like you, you pull out of a normal distribution and then you chop it off if it doesn't fit your range. Um, I suppose you have to go there from time to time. I just find it ugly. I find it like, you know, taking a, a beautiful masterpiece and just like, you know, slashing it right down the middle. <laughs> That's how I see it. Uh, the beta distribution is the more natural uh, distribution in this circumstance. Um, so it could look like a normal distribution. It could look like a little bump in there in, in between zero and one. And, and oftentimes it does, but it definitely, if you look at the equations, which I'm not really going into the equations, but um, today, because it's very hard to do, uh, you know, from, um, from, the, uh, from the audio perspective, but uh, it, it does kind of, um, it, it does kind of uh, look like a normal distribution, but it, it definitely only lives between zero and one. So it's kind of, the normal distribution of this domain in the sense it doesn't have the same properties as the normal distribution does, but in the sense that it's kind of the most natural one to use. So it represents uncertainty over a probability, uncertainty over the range 0, 1. Um, and the really interesting thing about uh, the beta distribution is that it is the answer to the Bayesian coin problem that I used to give in interviews a lot at, at, at Foursquare, uh, which is like, okay, Let's suppose that um, we don't know uh, what, the, uh, what the weight of the coin is. Um, so we come up with some distribution to represent our, our uncertainty. Let's suppose that it's the uniform distribution, uniform between zero and one. Okay, that seems, that seems reasonable. And um, even if as you're doing that, you don't realize that the uniform distribution between zero and one is one of the beta distributions between zero and one. It's, it's a beta distribution with uh, parameters one, one. Okay, so then you flip the coin once and it lands on heads. And let's say, you know, well, does, does that change your opinion on what the weight of the coin is? And it absolutely should. If it doesn't, think about it this way. Uh, if you flipped the coin 100 times and it all landed on heads or it was like 90% heads, 
does that change your opinion of the weight of the coin? Well, yeah, it's probably not weighted towards tails. It's probably not zero. It's probably, well, it can't be exactly zero because he got a heads. It's probably not close to zero. Uh, so um, so your, your distribution should change. And what's really cool about that is as your distribution changes, it's a form of beta distribution every single time. And not only is it a form of the beta distribution, but if, you're, if you start with the beta distribution 1-1, one, one, the beta distribution has two parameters, and then you flip the coin 100 times, and it lands 10 time, or 100 times on, let's say 10 times on tails, and, 100 time, and 90 times on heads, 10, uh, 10, 90. Then the next, the beta distribution that, um, that you update do, to when you do Bayesian inference is the beta distribution 10 plus 1 and 90 plus 1 because you take what you started with 1, 1, and you add uh, 1 for each trial. So it ends up being 11 and 91. And so you don't even need a computer for that. You just have um, what's called a conjugate prior over the binomial distribution, which means that you have, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you, you can just run your experiment and you know what the posterior uh, uh, uncertainty looks like without really having to do any computation. All you have to do is know this beta distribution math, which is really, really, really cool. So um, these two parameters that a beta distribution has, um, you could see are kind of uh, related to, like you could almost think of the first, even though they're, they're positive numbers, they can be, um, you know, they can be fractions, whatnot. But they're almost, like the first one is almost related to the number of tails you've seen, and the second one is related to the number of heads you've seen. And if you start with the, um, if you start with with one one, that means you're kind of adding an extra head and an extra tail in at the beginning, just for good measure. That's kind of like your your prior. You're you're biasing it a little bit. Um, so uh, as you can imagine, when these numbers get very high, like let's say the uh, the uh, let's say you're looking at the beta distribution like a hundred a hundred. Then, well, first of all, that's like seeing, uh, observing 100 heads and 100 tails. So you think your coin is kind of going to be uh, fair. And so it will look like a normal distribution. It will look like a bump at 0.5, and that will kind of um, taper off very quickly. So all of the probability mass will be around 0.5, but it might be a little higher, it might be a little lower, and it'll be like this... Um, this, uh, this bump that is very uh, uh, symmetrical because you've got the same number on both sides. But you can imagine kind of, you know, if you have 60-40, uh, uh, you can imagine moving the bump to, from one side or another. So that's one form of it. Now, what happens, okay, so the, uh, the, the, the uniform distribution is the, is, is the parameters 1-1. One, one. What happens when the, the parameters go less than 1? What happens when the parameters start heading towards 0? Uh, that is in the case where your bump has been flattened up so much that it starts it starts inverting and it starts climbing up the walls. So now you think, okay, my probability is either really close to zero or really close to one, but I don't know which one it is because I haven't observed yet. So an example might be like, hey, I think the most extreme example would be like, hey, I think this coin is double-sided, but I just don't know how it's double-sided. It could either be double-sided tails or it could be double-sided heads. Maybe I think there's a 10% it's double-sided tails, 10% it's double-sided heads. Um, 
either way, if once I flip the coin once, I'll understand which one it is. But right now, that's my uncertainty. Um, and then, of course, there's kind of the fuzzier version of that that you get if your parameter, if your uh, parameters are not a, are really close to zero, but not not exactly zero. Um, and so those are useful for when in situations uh, to model situations where you could make a judgment off of a very small amount of data. Because um, if you think about it, if you have these double-sided coins in the idealized case, and you flip it once, then you could make a judgment immediately. Now, there are situations like that, where you could make very high-confidence um, high judgments in, uh, for, with a very small amount of data. And it's good to detect when those are, because that saves you a lot of time. So that's a beta distribution with very low weight. So beta distribution can, um, I think is the primary way to capture an uncertainty of a probability between zero and one. Um, it's not the only way. You can have more complicated distributions in there. It's two parameters, just like a normal distribution. Um, you know, sometimes I think of it as like, um, uh, and, and sometimes I think of it instead of just having parameter A and parameter B, I, I think of having the average, which is A plus uh, A over A plus B. Uh, which is like the kind of the, uh, the, 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 the mean of it. Um, and then just the sum is kind of the weight overall, which kind of measures your dispersion. It's not exactly the same as variance, but, you know, it gives you an idea. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, so uh, 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 that's, uh, it's, it's two parameter, just like a, a, a normal distribution is, is what I wanted to say. So it's very simple. The math is a little complicated for someone who's not like a mathematician, but it's really just uh, some combinatorics and you know um, uh, some exponents. Um, so it's 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 not hard for someone to figure out, and I, it's probably one of the most common ones that I use in Bayesian inference, and uh, and and it's a very common one in machine learning. So definitely check out beta distribution if you are if you're in the market for that kind of thing. Hope you enjoyed hearing about it as well. I also want to point out it is. Mid-January here in uh, in New Hampshire. I don't know if I said this at the beginning, but this snow is coming down the whole time. I've been stuck in looking at the snow coming down. Very beautiful out there. So I hope you have a good week, and I hope you have a great winter for those of you in the Northeast. Enjoy the snow. Have a good week, everyone. That's the show. To support the local maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power. Oh,